This is the first time. Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center neighborhood. Here's your host, Jen Sodini. That brings us to Bill Ayers, who is doing this show. Bill Ayers has a book out called Demand the Impossible, the exact book we need right now, and I am being deadly serious. I think we all need some inspiration on how to get active in our lives. He is on the board of directors at truthout.org, an amazing news left media organization. The editor-in-chief is Maya Shenwar, and she's sitting right there. He is a distinguished, prof- well, formerly distinguished professor at UIC. He's an educator, a writer. Some of his books are Fugitive Days, Teaching Towards Freedom, which is a great book. Guys, give it up. Bill Ayers. First test. I get a huge dose of harassment and hatred on social media. Relentless trolling and lots of invented narratives about me, including, famously, that I'm President Obama's ghostwriter and terrorist consigliere. But I also get real-life death threats sent, or on occasion hand-delivered, to my home mailbox, which is always a little alarming. Sometimes I feel like Billy Goat Gruff on the bridge, the troll below preparing to gobble me up. But who are these trolls? I imagine a couple of lonely souls with several email accounts living in their mom's basement, fueling up on scotch or speed and bad coffee, watching Fox News at full volume, raging with but never against the machine. I'm not a special victim here. On an occasion, the surreal becomes weirdly amusing. For example, last summer, a package arrived filled with right-wing kitsch It was like a large swag bag from a secret alt-right convention featuring Steve Bannon. Two items stood out. One, a t-shirt with a picture of Welch's grape juice on the right side, and on the left, my FBI wanted poster from 50 years ago. Under the grape juice, it said, good free radical, while under my youthful countenance, you guessed it, bad free radical. The other fun item was a brightly printed bumper sticker that read, Bill Ayers and his wife should be in prison. When I showed that to Bernadine, my partner of almost 50 years, she responded indignantly, his wife, I have a name, not a word about the prison part. (laughs) Bernadine, now called BB by one and all because the grandchildren found it easier to pronounce, couldn't be here tonight. She's teaching in Amsterdam and I'm holding down the fort single-handedly the every Saturday night sleepovers with the grandchildren, for example, and feeding the jungle of houseplants all by myself. The grandkids are thriving as always, and they'll be fine, but the greenery, not so much. (laughs) Like most of you, we were unprepared for the violent volcano that blew up last November, spewing deadly clouds of ash and fiery rivers of lava in all directions. Donald Trump had run a dangerous campaign, to be sure, the bigotry and intolerance, the disdain for reason and the arts, the demonization of whole communities, and the dark promise to transform citizens into corporate consumers. This was Trumpism. Candidate Trump had concocted convenient sacrificial scapegoats for every problem and managed to cook up a toxic stew of bigotry and white supremacy, elements always lurking in our American soil, into a revitalized force with its own unique optics, 
The white robes and swastikas were suspended. The orange pompadour beneath the red baseball cap was in vogue. For months leading up to the election, I'd said that Trump would easily be crushed. I'm about as prescient as Karnak the Magnificent. But that Trumpism was a hazard that would endure and endure. Election night was a rough awakening. If you were surprised by the outcome, you have plenty of company. But if you're still surprised, even if you held on to your sense of wretched bewilderment for more than a day or two, you need to get out more. We hosted a brunch for our neighbors. Bibi had leafleted our block, inviting people who we rarely speak to beyond good morning and whose dogs are more familiar to us than they are, suggesting we gather and name this unique political moment together. 23 people showed up, more hungry for conversation and a hug than for bagels. We shared information, sites of resistance, and what we were each up to at our jobs or schools or places of worship. We wondered what it might mean to think of our street as a sanctuary, and we agreed to stay in touch. One neighbor wanted to investigate collectively installing solar panels, and why not? Every idea was welcome. Months before the election, Bibi and I had planned to go to Washington to participate in the traditional Peace Ball, held every inaugural weekend. We'd lay down our small anti-war markers and everyone would stand in their predicted places. I intended to vote for Hillary and she'd be in the White House. And there we'd be in the streets with our peace banners unfurled. It sounds so quaint now, but God, how I wish. We drove to DC more freaked out and more on fire than we could have imagined just two months earlier. And with a deeper and more urgent charge, with Trumpism about to be installed officially in the West Wing, We'd link arms against Trump's fascist campaign and the prospect of that power consolidated. Trump's rise was testing us. Indeed, the nation itself was being tested. And at every rest stop along the way, the swelling numbers of pink hats and fists in the air cheered us up, step by wobbly step. Busboys and poets, the marvelous Washington restaurants open to all kinds of progressive gatherings year round, was the unofficial headquarters of the resistance. We headed to the 14th and V location on our first morning in town. I ordered vegan scramble and BB the Oaxaca omelet. We've had this neat division for years. I don't eat any dairy or meat. Well, except for the occasional cheeseburger. And she, <laughs> and she from Wisconsin eats only dairy with unpredictable bursts of bacon. <laughs> kind of like Jack Spratt and his wife. Oh shit, I'm sure she has a name. <clears throat> after, after breakfast, we climbed to the second floor, a buzzing beehive of activist activity. Code Pink had set up tables, some with sign-making materials, others heaped with pink pussy hats needed by armies of volunteers. After picking out two for ourselves and four really unique hats to take to our grandkids, we joined the poster makers. Fight like a girl, we wrote. Black Lives Matter. People streamed in and out, colleagues and former students, comrades from past campaigns, and an eye-opener every few minutes. Here was a cousin and her college-aged daughter, thrilled to be at the first demonstration ever for either of them. And here was Bibi's young human rights colleague, who'd just been through a shitty divorce with, surprise, her wonderful new lover, Joan. The Peace Bowl with part rally, part party took place at the African American Museum of History and Culture, now known far and wide as the Blacksonian, a dazzling sight of conscience. It was packed with a bright rainbow of freedom fighters, young and old. Solange rocked the house and we boogied for peace with thousands, including our Chicago friends, Lana and her wife, Karen. 
This was not the first test, and not yet. So let's call the peace ball our practice test. Next day, Bibi and I were on our way to the inauguration when we got swept up accidentally into a swarm of black bloc anarchists, bandanas covering their anonymous faces, tearing through downtown, smashing bank windows. I was so tempted, but they were way too fast for me, thank God, and we were left in the dust. <clears throat> but we did make it to the inauguration itself. Two actual bodies among the million and a half folks Trump imagined as he looked down at the sparsely populated Great Lawn. We live on the South Side, and as you can imagine, our congressman had a surplus of tickets. So we scored a fistful and handed most of them over to our sisters in code pink. We heard the Prince of Darkness, live and in color, speak of American carnage from the Death Star, and it was chilling. But Bibi had smuggled a banner past security, say no to racism and Islamophobia, it said, and she held it high for almost three hours, engaging high school students, tourists, and of course, the Trumpsters themselves. A lot of people recognized us because we're featured monsters on Fox News and on the alt-right <laughs> websites, and a surprising number wanted selfies. <laughs> One woman cozying up to Bibi said happily, my friends back home in Dallas won't believe I got this close to a communist. <laughs> Bibi, Bibi assured her that there were more communists and anarchists in Texas than she could imagine and added, but I'll bet you and I agree about a lot of things. Like what, she snapped. Well, like if a child's hungry or sick, we ought to feed and care for that kid. Of course, said the Trumpster, but keep the government out of it. We talk, they talked on for another 15 minutes. Staking out a public space to engage and talk to strangers was lovely and instructive, but this was not the first test either. Not yet. Let's call this one the pre-test. The first test came the next day, January 21st, the historic, mind-blowing, necessary and heartening Women's March. <clears throat> Making our way to meet friends at busboys, the crowd was growing, building with every step, signs and chants filling the air. If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention, read one. And right below that, if you're only pissed off, we won't make the revolution we deserve. A determined love army was assembling and on the rise. A contingent calling itself dykes to watch out for held aloft a banner that read, if my uterus shot bullets, it would have more protection than it does now. <laughs> and right beside them, a group wearing hijabs carried their radiant message. Two-thirds of Trump's wives were immigrants, proving once more that immigrants do the work most Americans won't. <laughs> and this chant from a contingent of preschool teachers carrying a likeness of Sam I Am from Green Eggs and Ham. Don't put your hand up my skirt. Don't put your hand down my shirt. Don't put your hand near my rump. I do not like you, Donald Trump. <laughs> We felt right at home, the teeming streets of the America we always want to be a part of. We've been activists and organizers for half a century. Knocked on doors, marched, sat in, gone to jail, organized an underground and a campaign of sabotage against the Vietnam War. But we'd never seen anything like this spontaneous and wild momentum of resistance. This is the first test of the Trump regime, the very first test, and we passed it with flying colors. More tests followed, the airport protests and the town halls, and there will be many more tests to come. Not just the next demonstration, but principles and prospects, values, and ongoing organizing. 
All of us imagine what we'd have done long ago when history was being made. We'd have built the Underground Railroad. We'd have saved Anne Frank. We'd have stood strong on the Selma Bridge. Well, now's our chance to do something. When we got back to Chicago, the house plants were on life support, and Bibi spent the afternoon in triage and recovery. <clears throat>
You've been listening to a Chirp Radio podcast of our live storytelling and music series, The First Time. Our storyteller was Bill Ayers, and the first time Fora performed I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by Nina Simone. The first time Fora is Steve Frisbee, Liam Davis, Gerald Dowd, and Scott Stevenson. To hear more first-time pieces, check out the series' website, firsttime.chirpradio.org. And you can find other podcasts produced by the station at chirpradio.org slash podcasts. Chirp Radio, hear what's next.